Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. One of the definitions of launch is to start or set in motion. And every creative person has to do it. So what are the secrets to a successful launch? With eight to 10 hours a day, I was like literally emailing people one by one. I don't really check my numbers. You know, I don't really listen to the podcast. I'm able to do it again, but as a normal person. Welcome to Anna David's Launchpad. Hi guys, welcome to episode 304 of Launchpad the podcast that is all about book launches. I have such a crazy treat for you and that this is not one of those times where someone's claiming to have a crazy treat that's not a crazy treat. This is a live podcast recording. Yeah, just call us my favorite murder or um, the daily or any of those podcasts, WTF that records live. We did it. Did you think you could gather a live audience on a Friday night to talk about book launches? Well, you could. I'm so excited. This only happened because of Writer's Block, which is this amazing community uh, slash venue. It's like a gym for writers in Los Angeles. And um, spoiler alert, if you go to the show notes for this episode, you can actually get a deal on a membership there and they have virtual memberships. So you can grab the show notes by going to launchpadpub.com slash blog slash Paul. Now, the reason Paul is part of the URL is that he was my guest and by Paul, I mean Paul Shirley. And he was he is um one of the partners in Writer's Block. And he is a wonderful guy. And let me tell you a little bit about him in case you don't know. He graduated from Iowa State University with a degree in engineering. And then he became a professional basketball player. Not exactly the setup for a an author, but something crazy happened while he was playing on these three NBA teams. He started keeping a blog about his experiences, and that led to a book deal with Random House called Can I Keep My Jersey? Jersey came out in 2007. Then he's written for Esquire, Wall Street Journal, and then he released his second book, Stories I Tell on Dates in 2017. And that one he did on his own, which as you know, this is like my topic is uh, releasing books on your own as opposed to with traditional publishing. So I grilled him about that. This is a super long episode. It's twice the length of the normal ones, but you want to stick around till the end because first of all, the whole thing's very entertaining. When you have a live audience, it can be very motivating to be entertaining, but also, he gives these epic tips on how to launch a book, which only somebody who had done both traditional and self-publishing and is an entrepreneur could know. So uh, that's it. Enjoy this live show. I'm going to give you Paul Shirley. Cheers, everybody who Here has a drink going. or don't. Yeah, well done. Okay, so I'm going to say welcome to Launchpad. Woo! Yes! Yeah. Come on, come on. 
first live recording of this podcast. So you guys are, you know, making history. So mm-hmm, congratulations mm-hmm. on that. And it's a podcast that is all about book launches, um, how to make money as a writer, and why the hell anyone would ever choose this crazy profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you guys are are either the the perfect audience uh, or, or you're really hurting for things to do because you're at a place called Writer's Block on a Friday night. Um, Is that a dig at the name? Because I created that name. That's not how you get off to uh, a great start with your guest. Especially Insult the name of the brand? I love the name. Um, oh. I will say that don't you dare put the apostrophe uh, between the R and the S like I did or Paul will correct you. Oh, yes, it's yes. True. It's true. It's a collective, not a possessive. See, yeah. who's the smarty pants yeah. here? Yeah. Um, so, so okay, so I'm so, it means so much that you guys are here. This podcast, by the way, it's been around for about three years, um, has over 800,000 downloads. Yeah. Well done. Um, and um, thank you. And um, top 2% of uh, podcasts on iTunes. I will tell you a dirty little secret. Mm. Any pod, podcasts have so few downloads that any podcast that has over 300 downloads an episode is in the top 3% of podcasts. Is that true? Yes. Wow. It's both depressing and inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so anyway, and, the, and it's been through many incarnations. And right now, this incarnation is talking all about book launches. So I will tell you guys also that when Paul agreed to let me do this here, um, I kind of had to beg him to be the person I talked to and he was like, well, I, you know, they know me I, and, um, and, and so it was like, I begged, it was demoralizing. Oh, it wasn't bit. good. <laughs> but I'm a writer. So I'm, I'm used to being. Well, it wasn't, so yeah, it wasn't that it wasn't that they like the general populace knows me. I meant that my members, our members yeah, yeah. have already heard me talk so much because we do a bunch of Q and A's here, including With your Q and A, right? Like you did a Q and A here for us. Um, and so I think people get a lot of Paul. But can you guys give him a round of applause to show how happy you are? Oh, thanks, guys. More of Paul. I appreciate it. More Paul. Um, and so, okay. And so, by the way, there are treats for you guys. Um, so for the people here, anybody at the end, you're going to get an opportunity to ask a question. And you'll get either a free T-shirt or a free course on me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Also, we have this special where I am hosting a memoir weekend workshop two days, March 21st and 22nd at my house in Hollywood. It is everything I know about how to write a memoir um, and how to publish it, like including disclaimer and dedication and acknowledgments and all ISBN and all the stuff that nobody tells you. And if you're a Writer's Block member, you get $50 off. Yeah. So you need to come grab that. Are you at all worried that you're giving away your home address and that somebody's going to come back the next weekend. Do these people do, how many writers do you know who are like super aspiring memoirists who are like super dangerous types? Oh, (laughs) they're not dangerous, but they could be scary. It's always like the guy who has that theory that's the scary one, right? Um, I'm not coming to your workshop, don't worry. (laughs) That's also always the scary one. um, it is. Thank you for getting me a little freaked out about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, I've thought about it, but like, but you know, it's a risk I'm willing to take to share my knowledge with the share world. Share your gift. Um, okay. So, um, oh, by the way, if you're listening and you're like, what is writer's block with the apostrophe not there, mm-hmm. Paul? We this this episode is sponsored by writer's block. So, will you tell the, our lovely listeners what it is? It's like a gym or a yoga studio, only for writing. 
there's a lot of we we talk about how there's a lot of information out there about like how to write right but there are very few places to actually do that work and so we are the place people come to physically sit get the work done talk about building good habits um share with other writers the process that people are going through and importantly, commiserate about how terrible it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a monthly membership model. Right. Yeah. So or, it, again, works a lot like a gym. People can choose the number of sessions that they're coming to each month uh, and pay accordingly. Is it like a gym in that people pay the money and then don't come? Yeah, for sure. Those are our best members. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who are not in Los Angeles, you now have an online component. We do. Yeah, we have just started using... Um, Discord, which is a lot like Slack, only usually for gamers, um, to create online sprints so that people all over the world can jump on, set a goal, write for 50 minutes, and then let us know how they did. So, if they're listening, how can they find that? That's writersblock.org slash online. Amazing. Okay. So now, for anyone who does not know, I'm going to tell you about Paul Shirley. Mm. He was a pro basketball player for nine years, playing on three NBA teams. And while playing for the Phoenix Suns, he started a blog that led to a book deal with Random House. This very book, Can I Keep My Jersey, 11 Teams, Five Countries, and Four Years in My Life as a Basketball Vagabond. Which we're going to, the cover of which we're going to just trash later, which I'm really excited about because I hate the cover so much. I told Um, him, you'd think this was... Yeah, self-published one and the other one. We're g- gonna trash publishers a lot, so just yeah, that's buckle up for that. But um, but yeah, God, did, yeah the book did so, really well. So what do I know? Yeah, the book did well, but the cover's a catastrophe. Um, so what he so it was released to wide acclaim, 2007. He's written for Esquire, The Wall Street Journal, Slate, ESPN, and Flip Collective, which is a website he started. His second book, Stories I Tell on Dates, which is right below, was released in 2017 and developed into a podcast of the same name in 2018. Um, Please welcome the one and only Paul Shirley. Okay. Thanks. Thanks to all 400 of you who are here tonight. I appreciate that. There could be. They don't know out in podcast land. 4,000 4,000 people. It's a little overwhelming. Welcome to Staples Center. I'm glad you guys could make it here this evening. Um, Hey, listeners, there really are people here. There are a nice group of lovely human beings, yes. And what people out in the world don't know is like getting people to do a thing in Los Angeles is difficult. Right. On a Friday night at rush hour, is I, I actually did not know it could happen. Yeah, so I'm totally broken new ground. Amazed with all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about this first book. Can I keep my jersey? So mm-hmm. obviously, many athletes have published memoirs, but mm-hmm. I, I would guess that not one of them was praised by Booklist for having remarkable insight, humor or self-awareness, as yours was. So let's talk about this journey from sports dude to literary dude. What happened? Uh, First of all, thank you. You are right that if Ricky Henderson wrote a memoir, it would not be self-aware. So I'm I'm glad that I I think my self-awareness also was what made me such a mediocre professional athlete. (laughs) Like you need to have a lot more hubris than I probably did. Um, but that also made for a lot of good stories along the way. The genesis of that is that when I was in college, I knew this guy who got to go play basketball in Spain. 
and he would send out these email updates of all of the craziness that was happening to him. And I vowed that if I got to play professional basketball, I would do something similar because I thought it was fun and festive. Uh, and so then sure enough, my first year out of college, I came to training camp with the Los Angeles Lakers and then got cut as soon as they could cut anybody um, and took a job in Greece where I spent the remainder of that season and um, started sort of aping that friend, sending out these email updates every week. Uh, I was very lonely because professional sports can be a really lonely existence when you're just a mercenary like I was. Um, and I realized that if I made these emails funny, then people would respond and I would feel less lonely. So I started to like put some effort into like hamming it up a little bit. And I had the benefit of just like a weird existence because no one in my family or most anyone I knew had ever been a professional athlete. Right. So I had great like hook. Like, what is it like to be living in Greece playing professional basketball? So, so anyway, so these were just like a straight up, yeah, old school, like listserv of, hey, Paul, I really like your uh, journals. Do you mind if I, we add like five of my friends to this email list? Mm -hmm. So it just kept growing and growing. And for three years, I would send out this email every week of just like, hey, here's what's happening. And the list just kept getting bigger. Um, and I kind of started to develop a little bit of a shtick, right? I had this automatic feedback loop of if people are responding and saying, this is really good, then what I just did worked. If they don't respond, then that probably means that it doesn't work, right. which I think is actually interesting when I talk to writers about like, so are you sharing your stuff? And they're like, no, 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 I don't, it's not ready to share. And you're like, yeah, of course not. But that's how you're going to find out. Right. If it's good or bad or you should stop or keep doing it. Um, so anyway, then yeah. my career was weird and ramshackle and it involved like, you know, as an example and stay with me, it's kind of, it'll seem boring at first, but it gets kind of interesting. One year I go to training camp with the Atlanta Hawks. I get cut the night before opening day by a guy who was from Silver Lake, Kansas, which is right by me. And I was furious that, that he had done that. And then I went to play for the Yakima Sun Kings in the CBA, which was its own thing. I lived in a motel and I drove around a 1980 Chevy Malibu and I was making 700 bucks a week and it was miserable and I was ready to quit basketball. And then I got called up by the Atlanta Hawks because they had fired that asshole from Silver Lake uh, and played for the Atlanta Hawks for 10 days. I signed a 10 day contract with the Hawks, right? <laughs> And then got cut, went back to my parents' house, had to decide, do I go back to the CBA? Or my agent called and said, there's a job in Spain. Do you want to go there? So I went to play in Barcelona, Spain, for a team that was wonderful, except that then I got hurt 10 days in. I blew out my brachial plexus nerve, which is this nerve that goes here. 10 days was like really early. Yeah, it was really, my, yeah, that's as long as I can go. Um, and so then I was in Spain recovering and like the musculature here, here, and here went to nothing, but I was writing through all of this, right? So it's like interesting, I think, for people to go on this journey of like, what is it really like to be a professional basketball player? The next couple of years, more craziness ensues, and then um, I get a contract playing for the Phoenix Suns after coming home from Russia, of all places, and basically saying like, I'm done, I can't handle this any longer. Um, when I was in Phoenix, their website people said, hey, you're not playing a lot, so you got some time on your hands, and you at least have a college degree, unlike the rest of these dum-dums. So would you be interested in writing a blog for our website? Which at the time was 2005. Nobody knew what a blog was, really. It was sort of newfangled. Um, and I was like, sure. And I, but I knew I had been doing this thing for like three years, right? I'd been writing and kind of knew my way around how to like 
keep some interest. So I was at the time I thought if I do this well, it will go somewhere. I'd always been thinking I will write a book hmm. when my career is done. Um, so I didn't know exactly where that would go, but sure enough, it caught the attention of um, Bill Simmons, who wrote for ESPN, right. and the Wall Street Journal was writing about it. And then Random House, an editor at Random House, called my basketball agent and was like, does Paul want to write a book? And I don't think you turn down Random House even when you're 26 years old. So I was like, sure, let's do that. Uh, and that's what led to that there book, which, so in the vein of talking about publishing, I think one thing that is a bit of a, I don't, I don't know what to say about like, is it a misconception exactly? But like, it's a lot easier when somebody comes to you, obviously, right? Yes. Like that goes without saying, Seems clear, yeah. but also I think you have to put yourself in a position where somebody could possibly come to you. Yes, and yes, absolutely. But in listening to that, I'm just thinking how many millions of people write blogs going like, and Random House is going to find it. And like, right, but you got to figure out what is it about your story that's different and interesting, other than just like, here was my day and I went on this date and it was not that great and like, whatever. Like, people don't care about that. Right. So, what makes it so that people are like, I need more of what you're doing? I think that's one thing I see all the time with people where I'm like, you just have some, again, self-awareness that there are so many humans yes, and so many of them are writing. You got very little chance of making this work unless you throw it all out there, right? Unless you yeah. tell us really what's going on. Yes. But also I, I think it's kind of like people will say to me, oh, I, you know, I want to self-publish and then like get picked up later by a publisher. Like these things that happen to 0.0001% of the population, the majority of people are not going to be discovered through through their blog. So mm -hmm. yes, absolutely put it out there, but also plan to go and do the pursuit. And if, if you want to go traditional, which nobody should, <clears throat> hopefully by the end of this, you'll be totally convinced of that. Um, yes, I agree. And I don't. Let's talk about how you got Chuck Klosterman to do the intro. How'd you do that? Wrote him an email. Really? Yeah. People love that Chuck Klosterman guy, right? Klosterman, actually, but yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's like a woman's. I think it's like a dude thing. <laughs> Sorry, Chuck. If you're he, uh, yeah, I I'd read his stuff and liked it and um, said to Random House, like, what if I could get Chuck Klosterman to write the intro? They're like, that would be amazing. We'll pay him X. Like, I think it was $2,000. So I wrote him an email and I said, hey, man, here's what I've been doing. Would you like to get two thousand dollars to write a forward and he's like yeah of course i would and <laughs> then tough out there for yeah me. and then uh he wrote the forward that also i would say is kind of a rare thing but um <laughs> but that's awesome knowing um, how to send someone an email no that they say yes i think I not mean, if you have two thousand dollars that you're ready to pay true. i mean i, I didn't know. i didn't have two thousand dollars but if you know but that's another thing like i get frustrated when people are like how do i i don't know send them a fucking email and see what true. happens true i do actually know a guy um who, who got Jonathan Franzen to blurb his book and he didn't know him. So mm -hmm. it happens, but... Um, but um, We were know. talking about uh, Tucker Max earlier. I remember at that same time, like, for anybody who doesn't know, Tucker Max was known for writing, like, these really... Misogynistic, disgusting emails to his friends. Well, it was... He wrote, yeah, he wrote a book called I Hope They Serve Beer, Beer in Hell yeah. that had started as a blog, um... And similarly, he just like wrote to me out of the blue one time, like, hey, man, kind of like your stuff. Let's have lunch oh, sometime. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think that's how things get done. You just are like, if you're 
honest and vulnerable and say like, hey, I really like your stuff. Here's what I do. Would you get together? Then it goes well. <laughs> I love the like shake in the, of the head. I mean, yes, sure. The Pollyanna world. Yeah, sometimes. I'm telling you that He's this happens. He's from Kansas. I'm from California. I don't know. <laughs> Um, this isn't. This isn't. I didn't write a screenplay where this occurred. These are actual I events. I understand. No, we we we're on your side. Um, now let's talk about. Okay, I I in doing my research, I I read that you write in the mornings before mm-hmm. you turn on the internet. Well, yeah, before I turn on my phone. Before you turn on. The I'm phone. not in charge of the internet, guys. <laughs> As it turns out, this is this is not Iran, and I don't just go like click. Everybody's got internet. Paul wrote. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have just actually just started, a, like a few weeks ago, I started this thing where- Controlling I, the internet? Controlling the internet. I took over, um, where I don't turn on my phone until I've written, because I'm ready Yeah, that's, I, uh, I, we can talk a bit later about, like, my, um, figuring out that I was not treating my writing practice, uh, with the- seriousness that it deserved and that was one of the things that occurred to me was like i'm distracting myself on purpose as a sort of self-destructive tendency um and i and i think we're all just prone to these temptations so therefore just Mm -hmm. take it away right like just don't even allow it so yes i will write for my hour a day before I, I try to get in breakfast, meditation, a little bit of exercise and writing before I turn my phone on. That's good. I, yeah, I just learned this thing. Um, this guy from Amsterdam was talking about Dusseldorf days where he goes to like Dusseldorf for the day and he doesn't turn on the internet till four o'clock. Mm. Sorry, he controls the internet. He doesn't turn on his phone till right. four o'clock in the afternoon. And I was listening to it and I was like sweating going, I could never do that. That sounds so horrible, whatever. And then I just tried and the next few mornings, I just didn't turn on my phone. And, you know, I made it till noon one day. And, well, you know, it was amazing. And the quality of my writing is so much better. Yeah, well, I think we're all prone in the time we live in to self-importance because we're the center of this weird little universe. Right. And I'm just the same as everybody else. We start to think like, well, people would not be able to get by unless I was in touch at all times. And that's just not true. Like people will sometimes say to me like, what if, what if an emergency happened in the middle of the night, right? Because right? I'll just leave my, I turn off my phone before I go to bed, sleep, don't turn it on again until after I've written. I'm like, but what could I do to help? <laughs> right? Like I don't have any expertise. I can't save your life. They were choking. Who's going to call me if they're choking? <laughs> If I'm your first call, then you deserve to be dead from choking. So, I, but I think like that's, I think we all have to examine like, do I really need to have my phone on or do I just want to feel like I need to have my phone on because that makes me feel good? Yeah. Or, What's dopamine too? Totally. Oh, yeah. did you, have you guys heard about dopamine fasting? I bet Caitlin has. Oh. I just read about that. Ooh. Yeah, that didn't sound How does it work? Fun. You can't, you cannot allow yourself to be stimulated by dopamine. And so it's like a big Silicon Valley thing. Ooh, so this, I like this. I read this first person piece this woman wrote for New York Magazine where so you can't, you can't deal with your phone, but you also had a baby. And she was like, she had like her baby was doing something really cute. And she's like, I got to get away. Like I can't oh. she'll stimulate my dopamine. You know? That sounds really smart to me. Like there's the Pascal quote of like most of man's problems can be attributed to his inability to sit in a room quietly for 15 minutes. And this was, you know, 200 years ago, right? So imagine now where, like, we can't sit. Like, I find myself, like, 
what I'm at, I'm in a waiting room and I'm going to have to wait for 90 seconds before something happens. This is outrageous. Yeah. What, this is absurd. Don't they know? Like, so I like that. I like that idea. I used to, when I was in the sort of human that I was going to be was sort of, uh, already defined in grade school when they introduced chocolate milk at Jefferson West elementary school. And everybody was just like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. I was like, that seems too good. I'm only going to allow myself chocolate milk on Fridays. So I would just have regular translucent white milk that wasn't real milk probably Monday through Thursday. And then on Friday I would allow myself chocolate milk, but then it was so much better because I had like waited for it. That's we're polar opposites. (laughs) Um, It's fascinating. Um, Okay, something else that I read that I think is really interesting. So you you work on a book. This is what I read, what you told somebody. You work on a book for three months, then you send it out for feedback mm-hmm. while working on something else. So does that mean you wrote each of those books in, in three months, or is that uh, That's, well, so uh, first book, Can I Keep My Jersey, was written between the time I was like 23 and 26 in those emails. So that, that book is actually mostly just a recapitulation of a journal-style look at three years in my life. Um, and then subsequent to that, I wrote like 60,000 words of a novel that is pure trash. Mm. Uh, just while I was living in Menorca, Spain, when I was like 30 years old. Um, and then I came home from playing, I quit playing basketball when I was about 32. I had a couple knee surgeries and broke my ankle and had three surgeries on that. And so the world was saying it's time for you to be done. Um, so I came home and spent like two years working on another novel that was also subsequently deemed by me and lots of other people to be bad. Um, and then that's when I had this like come to Jesus moment in a coffee shop that's no longer there on Venice Boulevard. When I, so I had taken this novel to my agent at William Morris and he'd actually taken it to publishers. They all said no. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm going to self-publish this. I sent it off to an editor friend of mine saying like, will you be the editor on this self-published book? She took like six weeks and I got that email in this coffee shop in Venice Boulevard where she said, Paul, I'm sorry, but this is, it's not really a novel. It's not really a memoir. I don't think this is going to work. And I had that moment that we all need to have where I was like, I'm either going to give up on this entirely, or I'm going to rethink the way that I Mm. think about writing in general. Um, and so that was when I built what I like now as a writing system. Um, and it's also around the time that I started writer's block because I also knew I wasn't, I didn't have enough of a writing community for myself and thought there would be lots of other people like me who needed just a sense of a team, right? Like we all, you hear about these, these little writing collectives. We had a guy here who was at UCLA in the time of a bunch of well-known screenwriters and they so they just had this natural pool of writers i didn't have that because i was my degrees in engineering of all things and then i was a professional fucking basketball player like these are not feeders for being a professional writer (laughs) um so i started writer's block and i also committed to this system of like i'm either going to write an hour a day or i'm going to write 1500 words if it's Mm -hmm. a rough draft i'm going to do that six days a week for quite a while and then we'll see where I land. And that's when I also, in reading books about writing, kind of landed on this idea of work on a draft for three months, send it out, work on, be working on something else for the next three months so that you forget about that thing you sent out. Um, and what I've kind of honed over these last six or seven years is the ability to let go of things, right? So like 
in this six-year period, I've written a lot. I've already thrown away another novel because it just wasn't good enough. And that's fine, right? Like, it's, that's fine. Stories I Tell on Dates came out of that. I'm now in the seventh draft of a YA novel that I think is pretty good, has a chance. Um, the second draft of a different novel for grown-ups that's about a rock band. And then I just started a new nonfiction book. But again, it's because of this system, which is like an hour a day, whatever that is, 310 days out of the year, it's amazing how much you can get done. You're making me feel like I should have thrown out a lot more books. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't matter. Like, um, well, that's, it's probably, there's two and a half books in the world that will never see the light of day. That's not that many. I mean, we were talking to your lovely boyfriend earlier and, and he was mentioning that like Jim, let's give that like applause. <laughs> in in screenwriting there are so many projects that don't get made right there's just there's just stuff and I think in books for some reason we're more precious about like oh but I worked hard on it nobody cares how hard you worked on it I had to learn that right like I worked hard on some stuff that but nobody we cared have about full control over this as opposed to a movie where you have to get lots of people on board and actors to say your lines because we live in this magical time where we can publish ourselves. Yeah, that doesn't mean that anybody wants to read it. Just because you can publish it doesn't mean you should publish it. True, true. <laughs> in fact, I would say like most people, there are probably exceptions, but um, we have a, a person here who um, was a Writer's Block member, became a Writer's Block staff member. Uh, named Katie McElhaney, whose first book came out like two years ago. She had written like three books before even that book, which was not, I mean, she will tell you it was not a smash hit. Um, but there were three others, three other like miscarriages before that. Right. Um, and I think that's how most people are, is like there's going to be a lot of bad stuff. And that's one thing I see at Writer's Block is people get so enraptured by their first idea. And if it's, you know, if it's been six or seven years... Maybe it's time to just write something else. Yeah, again, I think we're opposites. I mean, I, I just, I have one book that I abandoned. And it mm -hmm. was, this was my lesson. And I never outlined a book in my life. I just always just wrote. And sometimes if I sold a book proposal, I had to sort of work with that as an outline. The one book, I outlined it. I did workshops. Like, that's the book that, like, I just got so sick of. I feel like I worked too hard on it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I the novel that went first into the trash was heavily outlined, and I sucked the fun Don't right out of it. Don't outline. That's the message. Take <laughs> nothing else. Take that away. Um, but okay, so this book, um, six printings, right? Yeah, something um, like that. What's I don't... that like? Uh, did, how much money did you make? Will you talk about money? Yeah, sure. Let's talk money. How much yeah. did I pay you? Um, so when I when um, when Random House called, right? Uh, I knew nothing about book publishing. So I Googled how much is a book deal? <laughs> Cause I didn't know, like, is it a thousand dollars? Is it like automatically a million dollars? There's just no way to know. Right? right. When you're a kid from Grantville, Kansas. Um, and, uh, and I also knew that I didn't know how to do it. So I needed an agent. And so in that process, my aunt and uncle lived in LA and I was like, if you're in LA, you must know agents, right? So I just called my aunt and uncle, like, do you guys know any agents? And sure enough, next door to them in Hancock Park was this guy named Irwin Moore, who was a TV a agent idea, yeah. at William Morris, right? And so Irwin is like, yeah, I'll get you hooked up with um, the people in New York. And this is like a little nugget we can come back to. 
he said, but why don't you come up with an idea for a TV show while we're at it? And I was like, well, what about wisecracking 12th man on an NBA team? And he's like, that's gold. Let's go sell that to Fox. Um, These things don't, ha- don't happen to most people, just to be clear. Okay, go keep going. Where are you from again? Cynical, California. Yeah, it sounds like it. Oh, okay, we so, need to get you to Kansas, so get you a little more hope so it's in your life. A stranger says to you, let's go sell, a huge agent stranger right. says to you, let's go sell that TV show. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, but anyway, so the, with the book deals, uh, Random House said, I think, I think their initial offer was like, like an advance of $50,000, right? And so for anybody who is not aware, in book advances... That's a shitload of money. They just give you the money. Yeah. And then... Well, they don't give you the money. They give you a contract saying, you get a third of this when you sign the contract, a third of it when you deliver the manuscript, and a third of it when you publish the book, right? Um, but you don't, you're never going to have to give that money back, which is another thing I probably Googled, right? Like, if they give me this money, might I have to give it back? Um, <laughs> then that is applied toward all sales throughout the life of... The book, right? Um, it tur- we got it up to my agent got it up to eighty five thousand dollars. That was the advance that I got from Random House, which is pretty good. That's especially well today. Advances, yeah. It's so at the time it was not like outlandish. Right. What year was it? It's two thousand five. Uh, yeah, somewhere in there. Two thousand six, I think, was the actual like when we signed it. Um, that book. So that book has now sold forty thousand copies, and it is. $850 away from me making back my advance. <laughs> when you get to, so on a hardcover book, you'll get about, you get credit of like, and you know this of course, but like you get like $2.50 or $2 or something like that toward that advance, right? Like credit back. But with paperbacks, it comes down to like 80 or 90 cents a book. So I have to sell like a thousand more books. And then I will finally have made back my advance such that I'm getting royalties, which also speaks to how good those business people are at nailing exactly how much they should pay. But they're horrible. Publishing is like the craziest business. I mean, this is- Well, like, it is a crazy business, but I just mean like they're good at knowing like this is how big this book can be. Wow, uh, we should get into some therapy no, here. No, yeah, no, let's, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't enjoy it, but I don't know if they screwed me over. They gave me $85,000 to write a book. It's, that's that. are worse things. And they've made back how? Out of I mean, right? They've probably copies. if out of forty thousand copies, they've made, you know, two hundred eighty thousand dollars or something like that. Whatever. Pretty I don't know. Three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. It's a great deal, <laughs> for sure. Um. So okay. And so was that a good experience? Did they listen? And since we are focusing on launches, how did you launch this book? Did you have a plan? Did they get you publicity? Like, what did you do? I at the time. Um, was writing, I had a blog for ESPN because um, because the, the Suns blog had done well. And so then ESPN was like, again, this is the, the roaring aughts when they would just pay you to write online. So they would pay me like $600 just to write a blog entry about what it's like to be a professional basketball player. So then that year I was playing in Spain and I would just write this missive about like, here's what happened in the world of being a professional athlete. Um, and that it would, they would get hits because, like, again, it was weird, right? Like, nobody had, nobody at that time had really done that. Not to, which is not to say that I was like a trailblazer. It was more just, I didn't, I don't know why, but athletes I didn't care. Write. Yeah. Um, You're the first athlete who could write. Yeah, it was me and Jim Booten. Is it Bouton or Booten? He wrote Ball Four, which was a '70s book about baseball that was famous. That is better than my book. 
Um, Better cover for sure. It has to be. So, um, so anyway, so that's a long way to come around to. I had this blog at ESPN, so we were able to like link to. If you like this blog, you can buy this book here, that's which helped great. a ton. Um, and I think they had set up like I did a chat on the Washington Post website. The tricky part there was that I was playing in Spain. Um, trying to help a team that was in last place get out of last place because in European sports leagues, if you finish in the last two spots, you get sent down to the next level, right? So while this book was coming out, I was also still playing basketball and had just taken this job in Spain. So the book came out two days after I got back from the US. Complicating factor, I had just broken my ankle on the last play of the last game of the year. So I was hobbling around New York City, which was where we were going to do some events to finally go see my book on its shelves on crutches, which was kind of sad. Um, But so then, and so then. And so then, yeah. So then we did a lot of radio, a lot of sports radio. I got asked so many times the, like, I was laughing with somebody the other day about like, what's the worst way to do an interview? And the worst way to do an interview is to say, so this is a book. Tell us about it. You're like, what? How? Where? So like there were a lot of those you get on, you know. At least with the decency to pretend (laughs) you've read it. Right. You get on with Bob and Bear in the morning. They're like, we got funny man NBA player Paul Shirley going to tell us some stories about what it's really like to play in the basketball world. So Paul, we'll talk about those dicks that you've seen or whatever they're going to say. Yeah. So that got old real fast. Yeah. I mean, again, quality problem because at least people cared, but it was like you're doing it, it was a pretty big radio tour. Like we would do a lot of um, again, because sports rate. This is like catnip for 45 year old dudes who want to know like What's that. Like? Yeah, that they basically could have played in the NBA or whatever. Um, and there was a little bit of a book tour. I was actually pushing a lot harder for more of a book tour because I thought like if I can get in front of a crowd they will they'll like me guys and then they'll want to buy my book um and I also was kind of thinking like I'm from the Midwest I had played basketball at Iowa State which has this very rabid following so like let's just hammer these Midwestern towns because nobody comes to them and they were not having that I remember vividly that so Iowa State's in Ames Iowa Des Moines is the capital of Iowa End of podcast. Uh, so uh, Ames is about an hour from Des Moines, but there are two very separate communities. And they had set up a book sign- a signing in Ames, Iowa, which is where I had gone to college. And it was gigantic. Like we sold like 120 books, which is really hard to do, as you know, in a physical setting. Um, and so I was like, we need to do another one of these in Des Moines. They're like, no, no, those markets are too close. They're too saturated. You can't, cannot overlap. And I was like, but I am willing to do it. All you guys have to do is just ship the books there. That's it. And then I'll take care of the rest. And they're like, nah, we can't. If you want to, if you want to call Barnes and Noble, you can, but we're not going to set it up. So I had to like call Barnes and Noble this and be is like, what I'm saying about publishers. I know I'm not, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm just saying it's also, there's great things about it. Either, right? Like that $85,000. Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it is an experience an that's experience. fun. You know, I got, to, it, I had such a good time fighting about that cover. Like I, <laughs> I was, I just was all over the place. And, but similarly, like I was like, but why don't we just do a book signing in Tulsa and Wichita and all these other places? Like <laughs> nobody cares in Wichita, which they turned out to be right. I actually set up book signings <laughs> in Wichita, Tulsa, Oklahoma city, and like four people showed up. Right. But as we could discuss, and as you know, like, I think even then I had this inkling, and maybe it's because of sports, that 
it's not really about the sales of the book at the Barnes and Noble in Tulsa. It's about telling people you're going on tour because then that gives you that cachet of like, people give a shit about what I'm doing. Like, is it going to change my life? Even if I like selling 400 books versus four is pretty irrelevant, really. In the long, yeah. In the, in the, the, yeah but like, but meeting the people and like getting them on your side for the long term, that is invaluable. Yeah, I mean, I'm all, I always tell people it's not about the, it's not about even making money from the book. It's like, what can you do with that book? Have a plan because otherwise, um, you'll end up bitter like me. <laughs> um, let's talk about okay. But this is where I start to get unbitter is when I talk about self publishing. So now <laughs> let's talk about your second book. So you mm -hmm. had this fantastic experience with these delightful people. What made you <laughs> decide to do this one on your own? Um. My editor at Random House left for Amazon and now has the best job in the world. He's a tastemaker at Amazon. He's in charge of picking out like, these are the books you should read this month, which is the best job. Um, so I might, as, as some of you may know, like you're really attached to your editor. He's, he has probably, it's kind of like, again, in screenwriting or TV, like if, if you've sold it to one regime and then they're out, the next regime probably doesn't give a shit about like whatever the project you had was. Um, so Random House had the right of first refusal on my next book, which was that not very good novel. So they had refused that. Mm. I had been playing basketball for a long time. My agent and I, he really was like in on it mostly just to sell that first book. So we didn't have like a real relationship. And I think he also was like, this guy's a basketball player. He can't write books. Like this was a one-time thing. Um, and so then I spent a bunch of time in the wilderness, just working on getting better as a writer and starting writer's block and running flip collective that you were talking about. Um, and, um, also knew that with memoir, unless you're famous already, it's really hard to sell a memoir to a traditional publishing house. Unless you're, I mean, if you have like, I was a, heroin addicted whore in Amsterdam and I'm going to tell you my redemption story like that might be right. the story that a that like they're interested in or if you're again uh Clayton Kershaw you could probably write a memoir and get it published right but in the in between probably nobody cares um, I think it but it's easier to sell a memoir than a novel mm, not if you're just a person if you don't have a hook Right. There's no, you're not selling a memoir. Right. Right? I don't know. I sold one. <laughs> well, what was your hook? Well, okay, that was different because I was already with HarperCollins and they had the idea for me. So. Right. That was party? No, that no, was the... falling for me. Okay. Um, And yeah, it was there. It was back when like year in the life books were a thing, like mm. I love and Julia and Julia. So it was, I spent a year following everything Helen Gurley Brown recommended in Sex and the Single Girl. And oh, Brown, right. So. Yeah, and I also think that like in... Even 2005, you could do some of this stuff. Right. It's, it's, it ain't going to okay, happen. So let's talk now. about the glories of self publishing or hybrid publishing. You said, I'm. Right. Going so to put I. This book out. Yeah. I would never say that I self published it, um, first of all, because that's a good way to get nobody to read your book, <laughs> is to say that you self published it. Um, in fact, I didn't tell anybody. I started a publishing house in order to publish that book. Yeah. But what does that mean, right? Like, what does it mean to start a publishing house? You pick a name, you pick a name, and then you start to figure out, like, how do I get this book into the world? I hired a graphic designer. I hired a photographer. I hired an assistant. I hired, like, a bit of a PR team. And again, I did not tell a single person that I self-published it. In fact, I don't talk about that ever. 
So because that's a good way, again, to like make sure that no one's going to read it. So, so do you say somebody acquired it or you just kind of... I just don't, I just gloss over that. Like why, like most of the time, I remember for like social media, I was just like, I have a great announcement. I'm, uh, my next, my second book will be out this date, right? So I set a date for it. I had bookmarks made. I, you know, again, I named a publishing house that sounds kind of reasonable. What's, what is this publishing house? Fourth bar, which is, um, this is, this is gonna, we're going to get real nerdy for a second, guys. Uh, so I told you I have a degree in engineering. Um, in a, uh, a three bar linkage does not move. That's basically just like a table. When you add a fourth bar, that's when movement happens, which I like as a metaphor for like, you put that fourth bar in and that's when stuff starts to happen. You're right, it is nerdy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so, and... So anyway, so yeah, I, um, so I was like, I sent it to three pretty big agents who liked it, but they were like, ah, I don't think I could sell this for a bunch of money. So like, I don't, I'm not the person. And so then I was like, well, fuck it. I, I think I didn't love the experience of doing it with Random House the first mm-hmm. time. I felt like I had enough of a platform that I could tell some people about it. And like we keep saying, I had learned, like, it doesn't really matter. You know, maybe, maybe I make $20,000 on that book, but probably not. It's more about, like, the experience of getting it made, going out on tour again. I've gotten a ton of, like, much more lucrative speaking gigs because of that yes. book. Of, yeah. like, going back to Iowa. I toured it really hard in Iowa and, mid- and the Midwest in general. That helped me get a lot better at telling stories. So for my book signings, I would just tell stories as opposed to reading from the book. I would tell like three stories and people liked it because it was a, it was an experience. I had a, um, had a giant step and repeat made one of those like eight foot by eight foot things, right? Cost 200 bucks. But when you show up with that at Barnes and Noble, they're like, Oh, this guy's serious, right? Like he cares about this. And it's same with the audience. They, they can sense like, Oh, you give a shit. So maybe I should give a shit about it. Um, and that's hard because you're at the Barnes and Noble in Minneapolis and there's, you know, four people who heard about it in an advertisement, three of my college friends who happened to live there and like four people who are wandering the Barnes and Noble at that time. Right. right? Um, but I do think as hard as it is, that's, it's your job. It's like that, uh, that line with, um, in almost famous where, the uh, lead singer is played by Jason Lee, right? And he's talking about like, my job is to find the one guy in the crowd and get that guy off, right? <laughs> and so I think like when you're out on tour, when you have any chance to talk about what you're doing, that's your job is to figure out like, how do I entertain this person? It's not their job to come buy my book because like, who cares? There's a zillion books. I have to figure out like, what makes my story interesting or what is engaging about me? And then maybe they buy my book. And also getting the perspective shift, like, of just, like, to get one person to care, you know? It's like, we were talking about it before, it's like, I vacillate between this, like, self-aggrandizing, like, there should be auditoriums, Mm -hmm. and then, like, oh, my God, like, you guys showed up, I can't believe it, like, I really, Mm -hmm. that you really get how special it is that anybody cares about this thing you made up. Yeah, I mean, like, think about quick survey. How many books did you read in 2019? Just throw out some numbers. There's no judgment. Three? Like Jamie Wright's books, by the way. Ten? Any, six? Five? Twenty? Oh, yeah. Sure, we'll count that. Yeah. 
All right, now we're inflating some stats. I mean, I would I read a lot, and I bet I only read 25 books last year, right? And our lives are short. So the fact that someone would get all the way through one of your books in a certain year or whatever is like kind of a miracle. Yeah. It takes hours and hours and hours. So I think you're totally right. And that's something that I've had to learn to come to terms with, especially because it's so different from basketball where like playing in front of 10 people would be tough, honestly. Um, but with books, like it, you, if you can think about like, if I can get 10 people to get all the way through this book, that's a win then you might write something great. You probably won't, but that's fine. You might. Right. However, if you start thinking like, I'm going to get 10 million people to read it, you're not going to write something great. Like, it's impossible. Yeah. Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to do. I want to open it up for questions. Do keep in mind, this is a, a game of bribery. Like, you, if you ask a question, you get a t-shirt or a course. The courses were $297, so it kind of seems like a pretty good deal. At I like, least as good as $85,000. Like yeah, I like that uh, choice you've set up. It's smart. <laughs> well, one you get to walk out. Anyway, who has a question for Paul? You don't want me to randomly call. Oh, here we go, Daniel. Uh, what would you do differently if you, you could go back in time? For listeners, Daniel said, what would you do differently if you could go back in time? For the books or the time that that one girl did, wouldn't go to that <laughs> dance with me? Um Hmm. I think with uh, can I keep my jersey, I would have been more patient because it was actually like a layup, pardon the pun there. Um, like we should have shopped it probably instead of just being like, well, Random House came and called us, right? Um, and uh, otherwise, I think I should have stayed more compulsive about staying on them about what are you guys doing? Because I was young and uh, I'm a people pleaser by nature. So I was like, well, they got, they got this figured out. I was like, I don't think they're doing X right, but like they must know better than I do. They don't know anything. Like it's the William Goldman quote, like nobody knows anything. My editor, again, in case he happens to be listening, we had a great time with it. We're still friends. But I remember being in New York sometime after the book had come out, and he's like, you know, this was, this was pretty good. Like, you almost made it to being a New York Times bestseller. And I bet, Paul, oh, shit, you know what? I forgot to make the call to Barnes & Noble to get your book in the upfront displays at all the stores. If, I bet if I had done that, it would have been a, a New York Times bestseller. But I, I just, it slipped my mind. Sorry about that. I was like, what? what? They're so, like, yeah, how? they have our lives in their hands and they're so tough. Of all the things, you don't have that many things to remember, but you forgot that. Um, so I think like as hard as it is to just be like staying on them about like, what are we doing this week? Let's, we got to have a plan. Uh, and if, if I need to go hire someone to do the marketing and the PR, great. I don't care because you, you just get so few chance. I, I will probably never sign another advance that big. So knowing like that's rare, let's maximize it and make the most of it would have been the main thing. Does he get? Is he getting a shirt or a? I genuinely will discuss afterwards what you want. There's sizes. Mm. There's a lot to figure out. Um, I believe yes. I'd love to know what what type of material lends itself best to self-publishing. Okay, so wait. Let's remind me your name again. Turn your Thomas. Uh, what kind of material lends itself? In your, in your experience, 
to self-publishing. Um, you want to... Paul? No, that's. I think that's more your scene. By the I think, way, I say hybrid because the words self-publishing does freak people out as an expression. Um, any material you want. That's the kind of beautiful thing about it. It is, um, you know, and it just the only, the most important thing is. Well, I think it's like the riches are in the niches. Know who your audience is, even if it's incredibly small, even if it's people who are fans of like plants that hang from a building, like. Find. You're <laughs> so insane. Find out. Know that that exists and write to them. I used to make such a mistake of like trying to appeal to the masses. Like, what are people gonna like? What what are, what's big right now? And it's like, no. What are very specific people going to like? That that also like keeps you up at night because you care about it so much. And then make sure you hire an editor. You know, we were just talking about how many drafts. Um, you know, I'm sort of a, like couple drafts and then you get an editor Paul was like like 18 drafts um you know but just make sure that it's three is what I say um you make sure that it's it's well you know it's the best cover not like this one no like it's the best cover it's it's as the words are as great as as edited as well as possible and that it's like a beautiful production because today you can release a book and it's gonna look indistinguishable from something that Random House or HarperCollins does does that even answer your question? Perfectly. Excellent. Yeah. What do you tell people when they ask you if they can make a living off of self-publishing? OK, so the question was a great question. What, what do you tell people when they ask if they can make a living off of self-publishing? Um, you, you will never make a living off of book sales. So find um, something you can write a book about that you can build a business off of. Like, we are all experts in something. So figure out what yours is and then have a plan. Like, am I going to be a coach? Am I going to go get certified? Am I going to have an online program? Am I going to create a product? Um, am I going to build a business? You know, something I did. I built a business around this. I know how to do one thing, which is like write books. Now I know how to publish them. But like, and now people pay us money to do that. Anybody can do that. Don't do what I did for 10 years, which was like, oh, this is totally going to work. I'm totally going to like, you know, yes, I did. This is going to be the book that's hit. This is the time I'm going to make the money off the book because that's true for 0.001% of the people who are writing. There's a very depressing statistics that I read. I posted on Instagram today just for everyone's inspiring Friday um, that that like a I forget what percentage of writers in 2017 made zero dollars. It was like 20% of writers in 2017 that it's zero dollars. Um, <laughs> right. So literally that was like a statistic. Um, well, yeah. And I, I, I would jump in to say that um, if you can't figure out why you like doing it, then don't do it. Because you're, there's no way that the material rewards will be sufficient to keep you pounding away at it. They they can be though. That's the thing. I think if you if you approach it like a business person, and I was going to say when Aubrey first connected us, she was like, "You are both writers who are entrepreneurs." Like I think you have to approach it as a business, and don't be precious about like oh, I'm just like putting together these words, and they're meant they mean so much, you know. Um, I, I think you have to be very practical and methodical, and and yeah, and of course, if you don't like doing it, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. But um, but I, what I mean is, like, if you don't find some satisfaction in the actual act of writing, then you're screwed. Like, it's not going to happen. So I, I see a lot of people who 
their parents were writers and they like for some reason they think they need to be writers and, or they love the idea of being a writer that's attractive to them but they don't actually like writing and they're sunk okay yes but i also see a lot of people who think they don't like it because they don't have a format they don't have a structure they're going crazy and mm -hmm. so and they're stuck and and if they actually had guidance and a structure that they they would like it you know mm -hmm. and then there's that dorothy parker quote like i don't like writing i like having written it's not joyful all the time but like i agree well yeah i mean it's i think it's i think it's a lot like uh it's a lot like working out right like i don't like i'm a former professional athlete i don't like going to the gym but once i get in the middle of working out i'm like this i have reached a state of i love this book called deep work um and he talks about like there's basically nothing more addicting than being fully engaged with something that's difficult right so like if that's uh being a blacksmith or playing professional basketball or just doing yoga whatever it might be if you're truly engaged with it and you've kind of like lost track of time that that's the best high Absolutely. that we can get so now what's important about that is i think setting up a system so that you can achieve that regularly but if you don't ever find that if you're never hitting that it's like i don't ever i have never found a runner's high ever and i again have run a lot but i'm six nine and i weigh 230 pounds like it's like getting a clydesdale to try to run distance like it's, it's my body is not built for that i'm just never gonna find that so i don't run for fun and i think writing is that way too yes it's hard and yes you need to come up with a system it's not going to feel good most days but at some point in there you're going to find something joyous about it and if you don't find something joyous in it then go play the piano and that's fine you'll make, find it in the piano I think if you're here or you're listening to this podcast you probably find some joy in it right i don't know though because i think there are a lot of people who actually need to be told like you don't have to do this just because your mom was a creative writing professor doesn't mean that you have to be a writer. I thought most of our parents told us not to be writers. <laughs> well, I'm talking about that very specific case because I am around, I see a lot of those, especially in LA, right? Like you get people who sort of fetishize the idea of being the thing, but they don't necessarily want to do the work. Law had a question, yeah. Yes. So, writer's block today, you know, writer's block, you also said you have a writing project. So today, mm -hmm. you're both like an entrepreneur and a writer. Mm -hmm. So my question is, which do you honestly enjoy more? Mm. And if you had to choose between one, mm. an entrepreneur or a writer, which would you choose? Mm. Okay, so the question was, which would he choose, being an entrepreneur or a writer, since he does both? Mm. So I saw one time uh, a question for BJ Novak of The Office, right? So he was like a writer on The Office and an actor, and he's written a book. And somebody was like, how are you doing all these different things, but doing them well? I'm not going to pretend that I'm on a BJ Novak level, but um, I think his answer was informative because he said, it's never about the thing. It's about figuring out the system for anything that I do, right? He's like, I'm always, I'm good at figuring out systems of how to accomplish whatever. So I, it will seem like I'm dodging your question, but honestly, for me, it's all about figuring out the system and has very little to do with the result. Like I didn't, I didn't love being an engineering student, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't my thing exactly, but like I loved figuring out the system for like, how do I crack this? How can I do the least work and still get good grades, right? And the same in basketball. Like I 
was not as gifted. I wasn't big enough. I know it's hard to believe, but I was actually really small for an NBA basketball player. Um, but I loved cracking the system of like, how do I, some of it was working on my jump shot. Some of it was be really nice to the trainer and the equipment guy, and they'll take care of you and say nice things about you to the coach. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, like it's pretty much indistinguishable, whether it's writing or running a business, it's all about like, how do I, how am I going to figure out how I can make myself the best at this according to some systematic approach and Coda, I really do think that when I was, when I was in college and I was getting a degree in engineering, which was hard and I was playing basketball on a really good basketball team, people would say like, how the hell could you possibly do these two things at once? And the answer was they fed off of each other. Right? So I knew I had these, I, one of my brief, uh, college, uh, fellow Iowa Staters is here and he can attest to like, there would be, I would see my friends on the dorm floor who had nine hours to finish the engineering homework and they would never get it done. I had 30 minutes because I had to go to practice, whatever. So like knowing I only had 30 minutes made me so much better at studying. Cause I was like, I got to get into it now and then get out of it and go to the next thing. So I think I was a better student and a better athlete because of the other thing. And I think now I'm probably a better writer and better at business because I'm doing both things. And as they say, I, I say this all the time. Somebody once told me like, if you want something done, you give it Ask to a busy, a busy person. person. Yeah. Yes. Like the more you do, the more it starts to generate, the more you start to think like, well, I, I got to have five hours to write today. No, you don't. If you had five hours, you should be, your output should be like 7,500 words or something right. because you can get in an hour what you need to get done most of the time. Does that make sense? All right. <laughs> Somewhat. Mm. There's so many Yeah, so Shannon was asking, how do you pick what to put in the book out of all the experiences? Like, mm. If you're doing a memoir. So memoir, you mean specifically? Stories I tell on dates. Yeah. So like, yeah, that, um, that came about because I have been on a lot of dates and I noticed that like I was going into material sometimes. It's like, wait a second. I know how this story works and I know that it does work and that's kind of shitty, right? Like, it's like, I'm like, I'm, it felt manipulative in a way. Right. So I, at first I honestly was like, I kind of want to write down as many of these as I can almost to retire them because I'm so tired of telling these stories. Some of those stories are like the grand story of when I had my kidney and spleen ruptured and almost died while playing for the Chicago Bulls. But some of them are less glamorous and they just have to do with like rejection at a middle school dance. But there's the sorts of stories that I always find myself telling. Um, so my process actually was, I'm going to write down the, what are the 50 stories that I can think of that come to my brain? I spent like a week thinking of these are the 50 stories. And then I spent three months writing every single one of those stories. And then I started to analyze like some of these stories have the same lesson in them because there's there was there's always like a lesson at the end of each chapter. Like, what did I get from it or whatever? And so then figuring out like, ah, shit, I love both of these stories, but they have the same takeaway. This one's just a little more impactful. It works a little bit better. So I'm throwing that other one out. So there are like 34 other stories that didn't make it into that book. It also so 
one thing that happened with stories I tell on dates, which honestly I'm really proud of because I spent so much time on thinking about how do these things tie together. It's really a story of me looking for love. It starts, each chapter starts on a date. And then I explain like, how did I, I'm in uh, New York or I'm in uh, Moscow or I'm in Barcelona. How did I meet this person? How did we get here? Now, why would I tell this person a particular story? Like, what do I want her to get about me that she doesn't get, right? So like in a lot of cases, when I was somewhere glamorous, I wanted to explain like, I came from a town of 700 people and this is completely bizarre that I'm here, right? Uh, and so then each chapter ends with me going back to this is what happened with that person and now we move on to the next place. So it actually starts kind of with me at about age, I don't remember exactly, but like 27, 28, 29 never having had like a real girlfriend because I was just traveling all the time. So there's this through line that it took me four or five drafts to get to and was actually a suggestion of my friend Madison Perry that we were talking about, who's a moth um, storyteller, to figure out this, this through line needed to exist. So that started to govern like which stories were important to that. So I think it's the unfortunate truth is it took three or four years of just like, ah, this isn't working, this isn't working. Oh, it's working. No, you're bullshitting yourself. It's not actually working. And to get to where it got. Yeah. Do you ever volunteer, uh, become convinced or coerced to uh, edit other people's manuscripts, friends, acquaintances, family members, and why? <laughs> So he was asking about um, if Paul edits mm. other people. Not yes. you. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. Because we were talking about this before. Yeah. I, I don't. I have a company that does, but um, but I don't personally do it. Um, but you do. So, uh, editing? Yeah. Not really. Are we talking about? Okay. No, I, I mean, I used to do a lot of that kind of as a, like for hire. Like I would just be kind of a freelance editor sometimes. Um, it's a tough job. It is. It's weird because like people, it's like graphic design or something where like people are like, wait, it costs what? And you're right. like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not Microsoft Paint. Like it's going to have, it's going to take some time. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I do it for fun for like friends. If somebody says, hey, I need you to read this and give me these, these certain things. Like I, I actually host like a, a feedback group just for my friends where we get together. But I think we all know that in reality, what we have time for is like, I can read 1500 words for you. I'm not, unless you're going to pay me probably, or you're one of my very best friends, the prospect of me reading your entire book is onerous at best. And it's hard too, because I always ask people when I do it, I'm like, do you want the truth? Or do you want me to tell you it's great? Because I, I give people things for both reasons. It depends on where I'm at with it. You know, the worst is when someone starts giving you feedback on of something that's out. Yeah. You're like, right. okay. <laughs> I do. I mean, I think that we were talking about um, my loose guideline is first draft, no one sees. Second draft, one person sees. Third draft, th uh, five people see. Um, but when you get into that five people zone, and I, I think I'm, I'm sure I stole this from someone. It's also a matter of finding different sorts of readers at that of those five people. So like one's your mom who's going to say something really nice, but also something snarky that you didn't expect coming out of her. Uh, and then like one's your significant other who is really rooting for both your creative outputs, but also your long-term success. Who's probably not going to bullshit you. And then one's like an old friend who's going to say, 
just nice things. And then oh, there's an old friend who's going to be an asshole. So like finding that group think and knowing going in, like I know that Anna's going to be really mean to me. So I'm not going to, so I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I also know that uh, this other person is, is really, it's going to be clear if they like it. Right. Right. Like I will be able to tell like, holy shit, this is really good. Or yeah, it's good. Right. Right. Like you have to be, you have to put that bullshit meter in too, I think. Um, okay. We, we have to get close to wrapping up. Was there anyone? Uh, Josette had a question. I just wanted to know what you think that the right Writers block community has done for your wedding career. Oh. Mm. What has the writers block community done for Paul's career? Um, so I think it, it forces me to lead by example. And there are lots of times where I'm thinking about how, whatever i need to uh send anna david an email just making sure that like we're good for friday night right um and that's in the back of my head or i'm thinking uh, this person is a new member and we need to make sure that he or she has their lanyard and whatever else right and so it's tempting to be like eh, maybe i just won't write today but i think actually the pressure that i've built for myself of saying here's how you should do this means that i then don't want to let them down so i'm like I have to practice what I preach. And so I'm going to go get my writing in and I'm going to commit to that being the first thing that I do. And then I'm going to start turning my attention to business. And it's a little bit like the phone thing we were talking about. I have some really great employees here and it's now starting to kind of run itself and I'm less important to it functioning, but that's hard on your ego, right? Just like when a kid leaves for college and you start to be like, Oh shit, they don't need me as much anymore. Um, but that's also means that something's working, right? If you're able to let it go. Um, so I think it is understanding I'm not that important to other people, but my writing is really important to me. So I have to keep doing that. And if I do, something good will come of it. Well, okay, before we end, um, you guys have been a fabulous audience, obviously, but will you give your top three tips for a successful book launch? Oh, for the book launch itself. The book launch itself. Oh. Um, hurry around to step and repeat. I yeah, to step and repeat is tops of the of the list. Um, I think it, I mean, it's, it's difficult for me to say what I'm about to say because we live in Los Angeles and we live in the time we live in, but being as joyful as possible about it and... Um, thinking of it as I want to share this with you and not that someone owes you mm. to read it or to be excited about it. Um, if you can get kind of that mindset, I think a lot of good things start to happen. Also using it as a chance to tell people you admire about what you're doing. So like writers that maybe are in your sphere, but maybe you're not quite at their level, but being able to say, like tweet at them, hey, so-and-so, hey, Chuck Klosterman, you don't know me from Adam, but would you write my forward? And sometimes they're just gonna be like, sure, I'll do that. Um, I think it's a great calling card, right? So like, I have done this, I want you to read it. With stories I tell on dates, because it was all on me, I was, and, and my, I had hired an assistant, it was a lot of like combing my contacts list and being like, oh shit, I forgot I know X person maybe that person will talk about it. I, I remember sending it to Mark Cuban, right? Who's the uh, owner of the Dallas Mavericks um, because 
he and I had vaguely been in contact a long, long time ago. So I'm like addressing this book that I'm sending to Mark Cuban. He didn't end up tweeting about it, but that's fine. Then I remembered, oh, I know this girl who used to work at this channel in, in uh, Canada who now is a WWE personality and has 1.1 million Instagram followers. I'll send it to her. She wrote for Flip Collective, this website I ran. So I was like, hey, Renee, would you read this book? And so she like did several Instagram stories about liking my book. So Mark Cuban didn't do anything with it, but that's fine. He's very busy. And this other person that I kind of forgot about came through in like great style for me. So again, using it as a calling card with people that um, maybe you've always admired or would like to get into. And then I think the last thing is sort of similar to the first as far as like, just don't expect anything out of it. And then, but not to be pessimistic about it, not to say it's going to go badly, but to set your expectations at kind of a middle zone and then just think of it like, this is amazing that five people showed up to this book signing instead of, ah, I wish 10 people were here. Because again, who gives a shit if it's five or 10? It doesn't really matter. What's amazing is that it's not zero people right. who are there. And, and if it is zero, because it did happen to me once, just pay somebody. Yeah. I had right. to do it once. It was, not, it was demoralizing. But like oh, yeah, said, yeah. Right. And then, I, but it also, I, I actually have, um, I've talked a lot about failure as a teacher for businesses and schools and stuff. And I think as we age, we all start to see that like our quote worst stories turn out to be our best stories because those are the things that are really interesting is when you're, we were laughing about like my first book um, got translated into Spanish by a different publishing house um, because I had a column in a Spanish newspaper and he was like, I think we can sell some books. We didn't really, but we had a ball touring around in Madrid and Barcelona and like getting to see great things. Um, so that was the experience and I didn't make any money off of it. I probably lost money, but I still, I will say that one of my greatest accomplishments was my Spanish is, is okay. It's not great, but I did a full radio interview on the phone, all in Spanish in his car and I didn't screw it up. And I was like, that, this is amazing. Like that I've pulled this off is uh, one of my life's greatest accomplishments. Um, and that wouldn't have happened if I had just been like, well, we're not going to make enough money. Yeah, and, and that's such good advice. I know that we said I'm cynical and from California, but I will say I had six miserable book releases. And that's why I'm such a fan of the self-hybrid thing, because the one totally joyful one was the one I did on my own. with No expectations around a publisher. Mm -hmm. It can be super fun or it can be hell. Yeah, so and like that's choice. I guess that's the fourth piece of advice is throw a party. Like when you have a book that comes out, we had a huge party for stories I tell on dates, um, and it was so fun. Like that's actually where these red socks are from. I bought like a red vest because the colors are red and black, and we had red balloons everywhere. It was unfortunately timed because the movie It came out like one month before <laughs> my book came out. Um, but we, we did it the right way. Like I was, I was telling stories and I made everybody, like I made the bartenders circulate with shots and we like, everybody had to drink a shot when I finished a story, which is what I want out of a book signing. I don't want somebody just up droning at the last bookstore while people like filter by. I want it, you, you want to turn it into a party and share that with people. Okay, well that's it. Thank you so much, you guys. Our live audience of 4,000 people. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you liked this live podcast, please throw a review on Amazon. Say how much you loved this format. And we'll see you next time.